for those who are uh, listening later, Module 7, Session 9, the second half. Um, I'm going to pray in a second, but before I do, does anybody have any uh, any questions? Because uh, this we don't spend a lot of time covering this, and this might be the only time in your life anybody's ever instructing you on putting together a Bible lesson. So does anybody have any follow-up questions from last time? And then we'll, we'll keep on going. And I'll give you another chance later, too. All right, you're all competent. Uh, that, that is good. Uh, just a couple of reminders. Next time, um, well, this isn't a reminder because you don't know this. Next time, I'm going to talk more generally about, and this is literally our last um, BTI lesson for Module 7, um, the principles of Bible study presentation. And it's one thing, some people are really good at putting together a lesson and then they sit or stand in front of the people and it just all goes down the drain um, because of, you know, nerves or, or things like that. So I want to talk about that, increasing your comfort level and um, being slightly interesting, at least. So uh, that's always a hope. <clears throat> So we'll talk about that next time, and, and I love talking about that, um, and I, hopefully that will be useful to you. So let's pray, and then we will uh, get started this morning. Thank you, Father, for this Lord's Day. What a glorious thing it is that the early church, in the very early days of the church's history, just naturally gravitated toward meeting on Sundays meeting on the day that our dear Savior was raised from the dead and was victorious over death. Lord, that has been our tradition for all these centuries. It's one we hold very dear. It's one that we cherish. And while it would be glorious to return to the days of Acts 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 where the church literally met every day, we cherish our Lord's day. And it bolsters us and it helps us to begin our week in the Word of God and in the power of the Spirit and in the fellowship of the saints. And so, like we pray every Sunday, Lord, we pray that this would be a day that would be honoring and pleasing to you and that our entire day would be focused on the glories and the magnificent truths of the Word of God and, of course, leading us to greater worship, more humility, Repentance, desire for holiness, lowliness, and to be as Christ-like as we can. Lord, we pray you would transform us. And even in this little time where we're just talking about the, the, the nuts and bolts of putting together a Bible lesson, I pray that this bears fruit for your kingdom and that there will be a day when even this little time this morning would be shown to have impacted the kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to back up a little bit. Um, I don't remember why exactly. Apparently it was exhaustion. But for this lesson, <laughs> I made one whole slide. Um, so I, because there wasn't a lot of content, it, we're just talking about presentation. And I think we, um, we did introductions. And I want to go back to that for a minute and just, just back up for a second because introductions are, are so important. And I thought it would be useful to you. Um, just listen to some introductions to sermons in the Bible. And you may not be preaching sermons, but if you're doing a Bible lesson and you say, here's how to apply this, you're preaching a sermon. That's, that's what that is. Um, so... 
Peter, the first Christian sermon ever, meaning the first sermon uh, after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of of, uh, the apostles. Here's his introduction. Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. First sermon. He didn't say, I know you don't know me that well, but, you know, let's just, let's just walk into this text together and let's, let's just have, a, let's have an experience together. First sentence, listen up. There is an authority to presenting the Word of God that I don't, want to be, I don't want that to be lost on you. The fact that you open the Bible and say, here's what the Bible says, is in and of itself authoritative because you're not speaking for yourself. Um, his next recorded sermon... Um, well, actually, there's sort of a part two uh, to this because uh, Peter was interrupted at the end of his sermon because the people listening were so pierced to the heart that they asked, what should we do? And so Peter begins the second part, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a combination of giving imperatives, giving commands and telling you truth, telling you what is true. You will receive the Holy Spirit if you repent. So um, then in his next sermon... He replies uh, after, after uh, having uh, healed the man, the lame beggar at the uh, gate of Solomon uh, by the temple. He replies to the people who are full of wonder, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety we had made him to walk. That's an interesting beginning. Because he just basically asks the question, How did this man walk? And you say, well, I can't do a miracle and then preach a sermon after that. Anybody could do that. But you can read a miracle in Scripture and ask the question, how did this come about? So, interesting beginnings. And I've, I've done a study of all the sermons in the book of Acts. And every one of them has a powerful introduction. There, there's, no, uh, there's no attempt to please the audience, strangely enough. Um, I, I think an irony of introductions is that if, you, if, if your motivation is to please your listeners, they're not as good. Uh, the motivation is to grab a hold of the attention of your listeners. That's different than pleasing them. Um, you, you can almost come across as being apologetic for the Word of God. You know, oh, I'm so glad you're here and just glad you decided to show up. And, and no, you're here. We're going to hear the Word of God. God sovereignly brought you here. All of the events of the universe conspired by God's sovereign will for you to be seated here right now at this moment. So you never want to be apologetic in your, in your introduction. Just, just do it. Now, you might be thinking, uh, I teach first graders, so what, what's the big deal here? Well, you can still uh, introduce your text with, um, with interest and with uh, something that grabs their attention and tells them that they need to listen. Uh, I, I mean, with first graders, you can say you need to listen or your mom's going to spank you, and that's, a, I guess, easier. So I wanted to just mention that about uh, introductions. So then we go over to the other side of a presentation and talk about conclusions. Why is a conclusion necessary? I talked last week about sometimes you hear a uh, you hear a 
pastor or a public speaker that can't seem to land the plane. He just circles over the airport forever and ever, like land the thing. Um, So why are conclusions necessary? Well, first of all, it applies the information to the heart and the life. It's a compelling um, uh, response. Um, By the way, uh, you are good listeners to sermons, and I appreciate that. Um, Let me tell you what less good uh, listeners to sermons do. When they sense the conclusion is beginning, they tune out. And you know how I know that? Because everyone starts putting their Bibles away and shuffling their notebooks and and everything. Um, I would say the conclusion is the most important thing you have to say. So uh, I appreciate Grace Bible Church that doesn't doesn't tune out. Um, And just because of that, I try to surprise you sometimes and not tell you we're in the conclusion. Um, But that's that's my little deal. So a conclusion lands the plane rather than crashing it. Now... In a Sunday school setting, I will often crash the plane because, well, we're out of time. That crashes the plane, but but you're here to get information. You're you're not on a so much of a a journey on one idea. We're doing lots of different ideas. It's also a final opportunity to impact the heart. Um, that's that's important. Uh, this morning, having heard about conclusions, I would urge you to listen to conclusions the rest of the day. And just pay attention to that and, and see if it impacts the heart or not. Uh, it gives a sense of closure and finality. It's an opportunity to impact the will and the emotions. Generally speaking, I want to impact your mind first, your will second, and the emotions will follow. But I'm not aiming to impact emotions. If I impact your mind and your will, um, I got an email from a precious saint this week um, saying I, something to the effect, I know you're not trying to impact our emotions, but the, the knowledge that is being poured into my heart is impacting my emotions as well. So mind, will, and then the emotions follow. And the, the, the conclusion is a way to impact the will. What will you do with this information? That's how you impact the will. Emotions are, are helpful. Um, they're not the end result of a presentation, but they are a gateway to the mind. And the mind is the gateway to action. So mind, will, emotion, all of those kind of work together. And then a conclusion is also, in our context, an opportunity to appeal to the unbeliever with the gospel. That's a, that's a great place to do that. So what is a useful conclusion? So let me just give you some, some thoughts here. And this is just a, a brainstorm list I came up with a, a while back. Elements of a useful conclusion. Uh, your, your lesson has reached a verdict, and you've, proved, you, you've proven that verdict. Um, that's a useful conclusion. To simply say, here, here is the proposition I made, uh, here are the three lines of evidence I gave you, and I believe we've proved it, let's pray. That's okay, that's a great conclusion. Um, a gospel appeal. I, I'm going to talk about that this morning. My, I, I would say in the top three biggest burdens I have as a pastor, it is knowing that Jesus said the tares will grow up with the wheat and knowing almost undoubtedly I am preaching to some, a few, I hope none, but some or a few who have been in church for a long time and believe they're saved, but they're not. And so the gospel must be continual. This is what um, Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And the context is in the context of teaching the Bible, preaching the Bible, that you're still proclaiming the gospel. A call to action. And we talked about this in application, but uh, generally speaking, the more specific, the better. 
some, some of your texts that you're doing have a natural implication to it. If you're doing a text that's high Christology, for example, if you're studying Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the, the application is simple. Worship Christ. Be in awe of Him. And that's, that's great and that's fine. But generally speaking, your call to action, especially in a, in a Bible study or a, in a Sunday school setting, a, a smaller setting, make it specific. Make it something I would encourage you to do this this week. If you really have uh, some clout with the folks you're teaching, you can say, and I will check in on you next week to see if you did. That's a great thing to do. If you've got a consistent group, that's, that's accountability at the highest level. But generally, things like um, think heavenly thoughts. That's great. And Colossians 3 says, think on things that are above, and we understand that. But what does that actually, how does that work out to, uh, in real life? What are you going to actually do? Um, you can encourage obedience and discourage disobedience. I, I'm, I, I've ceased being amazed, but in a certain sense it still amazes me that um, believers can hear a call to obey and it never clicks with them that that actually means repenting of something and making a life change. And changing something you do. It's just, well, that was interesting. I, 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 I need to think about that. Um, no. If you have a seven-year-old and you say, you need to clean your room. And the seven-year-old says, let me think about that. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to help you think on both ends of your brain. Because, <laughs> no, you don't need to think about it. You need to do it. You can lift, lift up the yearning heart. Do you realize that uh, if you truly believe the sovereignty of God, if, you, if you're teaching a group of five, six-year-olds, at that moment, God placed them in front of you. You are the person that God has ordained to encourage their little hearts. And so that's a, that's a weighty thing and a wonderful thing to do in the conclusion is to be encouraging. I think on most occasions it ought to be positive. Once in a while, it needs to hit hard and hit home. Uh, I won't give anything away, but listen for that later today. It should retain the interest of the hearer until the final word. Um, If you don't know how to land the plane, everyone knows it. Uh, That's just the way it is. Uh, The the best judges of public speaking are the ones who are listening, right? So I know when I'm not landing the plane well because I start to get the, okay, he's not making eye contact. What time is it? And that's, uh, uh, but God helps me and I make eye contact with you right when you do that. (laughs) So retain interest. Better to speak shorter and be interesting. Uh, Leave them wanting more and that sort of thing. Now, on the other side of that, uh, I personally believe in, in cramming as much content into one talk as I can. And the reason for that is um, one of my mentors, Steve Lawson, said if a sermon isn't worth listening to twice, it's probably not listening, worth listening to once. Um, so I, I agree with that. And as I said a moment ago, a conclusion should not be assigned to the listener to check out now. Um, that, that's not helpful. So, so end well if you can. And you, you might find yourself spending an hour or two just crafting a conclusion that takes 20 seconds to deliver. So uh, that, that's important. Few key ingredients that might go into a conclusion. Maybe an illustration. 
We're built for stories. Stories are powerful and they're, they're helpful. That, that can't replace content, obviously. Um, I, I've heard so many sermons that begin with, you know, my grandmother, and I, I can't even do it anymore. And I know I'm going to slip up in one of these years, preach a sermon that starts with my grandmother. Um, but that usually is an indicator that, that I'm trying to grab your interest with my personal life. However, illustrations are helpful and they're, they're very, very useful. You can end with a question. I think, uh, I, I think one of the greatest ways to end a talk is asking questions like, what are you going to do with this? What time will you obey? What day will you make this change? Those kinds of questions are very compelling, and you see some examples of that in Scripture. Um, specific instructions. I think that's useful. You know what thrills my heart? Is when I say something like, there are two things you should do before the, before the end of the day today, and I see 400 pencils come out. I love that. Um, guidelines. When you're talking about difficult things like relationship problems or, or uh, depression or anxiety, things that are tender and, and are open wounds in people, then, then giving guidelines and some helpful uh, hints from Scripture is a good way to end. Um, an appeal to the heart with artistic words. Uh, there, there are countless passages in Scripture that utilize poetry, um, utilize, a, utilize a, a hymn, because that, that reaches and grabs your heart and it, begins, it lands the plane slowly instead of a crash landing. And it's, it's helpful to the heart. And then the great thing to do is just simply recapping what you said. Recap what was learned. I think that's useful. One of my professors just repeatedly would say that repetition is the key to learning and learning is the key to repetition. He would say it over and over again. Okay, that's conclusions. Funny that I didn't end with that, but that's the way it is. (laughs) How about illustrations? Illustrations. Let me give you a rationale, uh, some rationale here. A lesson filled with illustrations isn't a bad lesson. A lesson filled with illustrations and no rich biblical content is a bad lesson. Um, if you read through some of the sermons of Jesus, they were filled with illustrations. Um, and plus, he's God, and whatever he says is the word of God. So that's, that's convenient there. Jesus, in some of his sermons, are all, is almost exclusively... Uh, Illustrative. What do we call those? Those are parables. Yeah. And, and we don't teach that way because we have to use parables and parabolic-like language as a, as a side note, as a help. He taught that way because uh, he had a specific purpose for parables. Uh, it was a twofold purpose, to hide the truth from unbelievers and to reveal it to those who are believing. And so uh, our job is not to conceal truth. He chose to do that. Our job is to reveal truth. But uh, Jesus taught through illustrations. Uh, much of Scripture is narrative, it's stories. That, that being said, uh, if you think, I don't know how to come up with illustrations. And there, there are books and books and books about how to come up with illustrations. You know how, how many of them I've read? I don't want to tell you this. Zero. I've never struggled with coming up with illustrations, and you shouldn't either. You want to know why? you got a book full of them. Right? You have a book full of them. Um, I don't... I don't like to. I don't use illustration resources, rehashed uh, illustrations that some other pastor used. I don't want to do that. Um, that being said, 
First of all, you have a book full of illustrations. And how powerful is that? You're teaching a truth from an epistle. If you can illustrate it from a narrative section of Scripture, you just got a double whammy. You taught two portions of Scripture. And that's, that's very powerful. But what, how did Jesus um, use illustrations? He used everything around him that was common to people. Look at the birds of the air. Little known fact, Israel apparently has more bird migration than any place on earth. So look at the birds of the air was a big deal. Um, the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. Technically, the orchid seed is, orchid or chrysanthemum, one of those. Um, but the mustard seed was the smallest one in the ancient Near East that they knew about because they didn't grow orchids. Um, the camel, he talked about as the largest of all animals. It's the largest one they knew about. But he just used things around him. Um, and I think that's useful to you. So use the Bible, use things around you. Um, if an illustration isn't interesting to you, just a rule of thumb, it's not going to be interesting to anybody else. So um, can I say this too? And I, I, this is just a little pet peeve of mine. Never begin an illustration with Webster's Dictionary defines this as. <laughs> Nobody cares because Webster's Dictionary is not authoritative. Um, so that's just a little thing for me. We're made to relate to and understand truth through experience and stories. That's, we're just made for that. And so that's, that's part of the rationale. And then illustrations help captivate the heart. And you have to grab the heart if you're going to get the mind. Um, I have the luxury at Grace Bible Church that you are going to assume that I will grab your mind in most cases. And so uh, you're, you're already there. But you may have to work harder at helping grab the mind. Um, Think about how much children love a story. Uh, I mean, we're all this way. Would you rather, if you're eight years old, would you rather hear, let me tell you a story about a dinosaur, a man, and a baseball glove? Okay, I'm kind of interested in that. Um, Or are you going to say, let me give you a lesson about anthropology and being made in the image of God. Well, if you're eight, you're like, I don't even know what that first word is. I think I had that once and I went to the doctor. And (laughs) so they captivate the heart. They're helpful. So let me give you some examples of bad illustrations and good illustrations. Because you might say, well, oh, I can do that. Bad illustrations tell a story for the sake of the story. It doesn't connect the mind with the topic at hand directly. Um, for example, I listened to a, a, a pastor, a local pastor, this is a number of years ago, and I, I just listened to him because I, I like listening to him. He's very interesting. Um, he has zero content whatsoever, but he, he's entertaining. So to me, it's like listening to a talk show host, and you know, there's, no, there's no value to it spiritually, but I, I enjoyed it. Um, and he gave an opening illustration that took seven and a half minutes in a 30-minute sermon. In the seven and a half minutes, I was entertained. I was mildly amused. And it had nothing to do with what he was about to talk about. You know how I knew it had nothing to do with what he was about to talk about? Because he said... This doesn't really have anything to do with what I'm about to talk about. But I just thought it would help warm you up for the rest of our sermon. He wasted 25% of his time on that. So that's a bad illustration. Uh, illustrations just for the sake of getting attention. If, if you hear somebody who tells stories from their own life all the time, and I'll, I'll do that on occasion, but if, it's, if that's a regular habit, that's probably not helpful. 
That's not useful. Uh, uh, humor, just for the sake of being humorous. Um, I don't ever, and, and you shouldn't do this, I don't ever use canned humor. Did you hear the one about the, if something funny happens, then praise the Lord, but that's entirely spontaneous. And, and so I'm thankful for that when it does happen. But humor, just for the sake of being funny, is, well, are you teaching the word or are you trying to be a stand-up comedian? Because they're, they're two very different things. And you can do both. Um, you can do both. My favorite humorous sermon moment of all time um, happened with John MacArthur preaching a very serious sermon on anxiety and depression. A very, very serious sermon. And then he drops this one little comment at the end of a super serious thing that just lifted the roof off in laughter and he needed it at that moment. And it, it was glorious. I've listened to that moment probably a hundred times just because it's, it, it's fun. But it, it has a specific purpose. So illustrations that are just for no particular reason don't help explain the text or the concept. They're not helpful. But let me give you an example. If you were to say, give an illustration and say something like, one time I was flying in an airplane and I got stuck next to a horribly rude and overly talkative person. He was loud, he was obnoxious, and he wouldn't let me have a moment's rest. I thought that flight would never end. I'd like to talk to you about how to fly around life's troubles. Well, okay, it was a nice story, but that's not where I thought it was going. It doesn't really add to the understanding of the topic at hand. What does a good illustration do? A good illustration engages your heart, engages your emotions. That's important. It's easy to picture. You know, I can say, you know, think about the theory of relativity. Okay, I think there's an E in it somewhere. It's drawn from scripture. You can't go wrong with those. Now, you can, use, you can misuse a, a text in Scripture uh, for something it doesn't mean, so you have to be contextual. Uh, it's drawn from familiar aspects of daily life. Um, one of the reasons I don't like to, to use illustration uh, resources is because they age really fast. Uh, they age, just listen to old sermons, uh, maybe even some of mine. I don't know. You know, when somebody talks about, uh, yeah, I, I sent a letter, and, and everybody under 25 is going, what's a letter? You know, A, B, C, D, I, that's a letter. Um, so they, they age quickly. So, uh, you know, that's another lesson for another day. But I, I, I don't like to use illustrations that age fast. Um, you may know this. I rarely refer to the year of something unless it's historic. Um, because, you know, in 2023, it might be contemporary to say just last year in 2022. If somebody's listening to this in 30 years, oh, wow, that's so old. Um, so familiar aspects of daily life. Uh, Make it contemporary because that's what people are relating to at that moment. Um, it relates directly to helping the listener understand the concept or the term being explained or the text being explained. So that's, that's useful. So let me go back to the airplane illustration. One time I was flying in an airplane and got stuck next to a horribly rude and overly talkative person. He was loud, obnoxious, and wouldn't let me have a moment's rest. I thought that flight would never end. I was really disappointed with my internal reaction to this person before I'd even had time to get to know him. I thought more about myself than I did about him. I'd like to talk to you about selfishness. And the cure is to see others as they will be, not as they are. Do you see how that relates? That gets you into it. Not... I want to talk about flying around life's troubles. That, that makes no sense. So it's the same story, but now you're emotionally involved because I, I hooked you in with what I actually want to talk about. So that's something, you know, all of us are born storytellers, so I don't think I need to tell you how to good, use good illustrations. If it grabs your heart, then it's probably useful. That's, that's a good rule of thumb.
So I want to talk about transitions. I didn't transition very well to that, but that's all right. I, I would say in teaching a Bible lesson, transition, the, the, the art of transition is one of the most important things you can learn. And frankly, it's a, good, it's a good thing to learn just in communicating with people in general, that you're tying ideas together. This is what makes a lesson flow logically. It's also what creates interest. It's what creates um, some sort of momentum, some sort of direction. I think all of us, when we're listening to somebody talk, we want, we want to sense a direction. We want to sense a momentum. And it's okay if you don't. Uh, we're, today, I'm doing a lecture. There is no momentum. There is no, uh, there is no direction. I'm just giving you bullet points, but I've told you that up front, at least. So what is a transition? A transition is a statement or a series of statements that links what you just said with what you're about to say. And those are, those are very important. They, they put the life into a lesson by building interest in drama. So let me give you some example of tying ideas together. And I do this with, uh, with preachers that I get to train, some in our own church, and then I do this uh, with uh, a, a seminar I teach every year. Tying completely unrelated ideas together. I'll give you an example of rough transitions. Here are the three points. The color red, pride, and ice water. Okay, those are completely unrelated. Here are rough transitions. Point one, the color red. Red is a color we associate with emotions such as anger and embarrassment. Blood runs to part of our body to make the skin appear more red than usual. Point two, pride. How much transition was there? None. It was like shifting into reverse while you're still going forward. Pride. Christians are prone to pride over anything and everything. We can be proud of how much we have or proud of how little we have. Pride needs to be dealt with every day. And point three. Ice water is often used as a metaphor for refreshment and renewal. A cool drink of water on a hot day just feels like new life. Let's close in prayer. And you're like, what? That didn't make any sense to me. So... It's my belief that any set of topics may be tied together. Our brains work that way. Um, It's like the old joke that uh, the the guy says, uh, I'm asking for directions. Can you tell me how to get to the convention center downtown? And the person says, well, you can't get there from here. When you think about that for a moment, you can get anywhere from anywhere, right? So how do you tie these together? Let's do it more smoothly. Point number one, the color red. Red is a color we associate with emotions such as anger and embarrassment. Blood runs to part of our body to make the skin appear more red than usual. There is no such outward visual indicator when pride dominates our hearts. We can say the right words and we can appear to do the right things, but the motive of the heart is pride. Speaking of pride, that's our second point. Christians are prone to pride over anything and everything. We can be proud of how much we have or proud of how little we have. Pride needs to be dealt with every day. Pride is like a drain on our spiritual hydration. It makes us dehydrated spiritually. Instead of being hydrated with the humility that's associated with being a slave of Christ, we become dry and parched in the arrogance of our own self-perceived importance. So the answer is to stay hydrated with the cool, invigorating ice water from the Savior who gives the water of life. And that's our third point, ice water. Ice water is used as a metaphor for refreshment and renewal. A cool drink of water on a hot day just feels like new life. And, and a continual reminder 
that were purchased, that were bought, that were owned as slaves of Christ is to drink once again, time and again, from the cool, refreshing water of the Savior so that we're not drained of our spiritual vitality and our hearts don't blush with the blood-red embarrassment of having acted in conceit, pride, self-importance, and vanity. The color red, pride, ice water, all tied together now in one thought. What's the only difference? The difference is I told you the logical flow in a transition. So I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. If you will take some time to think about that, that makes the difference between a, a lecture and something that feels like it has momentum and a direction. So, uh, so how do you do all this? I've given you this list up here, and really it's just a matter of making a checklist with these elements. So if you're going to teach a 30-minute lesson, I, I would say spending some time... You've done, your, you've done your Bible study. I would say spending some time just looking through this. Okay, do I have a structure that's reasonable? Um, what's my proposition? What, what's the main idea I'm trying to get across? What's my introduction look like? Is it, is it useful? Is my conclusion useful? Do I have illustrations and do I have transitions? And if you just use that as a checklist, I promise you this will, it won't make your lessons worse. I know that. And it will probably make them a lot more interesting rather than just rambling around with a, with a, lot, of, um, a, a lot of ideas kind of strung together. So my prayer for all of you is, I put it on the slide, may God protect us from ever making his word seem boring. If I'm going to give you a lecture on you know, how to change a water pump on a 1957 Chevy, okay, I don't know how to make that interesting, and you need to know the information, and that's fine. But I don't care if it's interesting, because that's not eternal stuff. This is the word of God. And the word of God, to me... If you make the Word of God boring, that's on you, not on the Bible. In other words, uh, if somebody serves a steak dinner and drops it on the floor, that's not on the steak. The steak was already good. So all you have to do is take the time to do this. Now, I know you, you may read sermons in Scripture. The book of Hebrews is one entire sermon. And I know the author of the book of Hebrews has the advantage that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And none of us will ever have that experience. However, for that very reason, how much can you learn from it? How much could you learn from the sermons in Acts? I, I would love for every one of you to take a, a, you know, a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday morning and just decide you're going to... Um, you can even you can uh, download from the LSB site. You can actually print out the book of Acts so that you can mark all over if you don't like to mark in your Bible. And just go and highlight every sermon that's in there, every talk in front of people. And you will find they have lots of commonalities. Uh, one of the biggest things I found is that um, we live in a culture that tries to reserve, reserve a, an authoritative demand for action in very, very conservative terms. For example, the careful preacher will always use the pronoun we when he really wants to say you. We need to love our wives better. I already love my wife. Why am I saying we? You know what I noticed in the book of Acts? The pointed you happens fast in sermons. It's not near the end. It's usually right at the beginning. You need to listen. You know what I love about that? Everyone that doesn't want to listen will just walk out. And then you have a purified audience, right? So, 
read some of the sermons in the book of Acts and adjust your lessons with these those things there. And there you go. I promise you it'll be more interesting than, than if you just put a bunch of thoughts down. Now, we actually have 10 minutes to ask questions about this, and I, I would love to take some. So questions about presenting a Bible lesson or how to listen to one better. I don't know. That might be helpful, too. What, what questions do you have? Yeah, Logan. So if you give a lesson and you feel like it uh, fell flat, how do you encourage someone that gave their best, but there was no proof or they feel like... So, okay, are you the listener or the the giver of the lesson? You're the giver of the lesson. It fell flat. Okay, there are several things to do that uh, do in that case, and that's that's pure emotion, um, and it may be accurate emotion, and it may not be. Um, I think, like anything else, you need to you need to take it apart. Okay, if I genuinely believe this didn't this didn't go well, then which of these elements did I leave out, or which ones did I not carefully craft? Um, and it may be what we're going to talk about next time. It may be that you had great content. It's just your presentation was all over the map. Uh, or you didn't trust your notes. You must trust your notes and not go all over the place. Because if you, go, if you won't stick to your own notes, that means you don't trust yourself. You don't trust the work that you did. So you would go back. But just, just analyzing. And then if you really, really want to be brave, um, ask one or two or five people who were there and say... I didn't like what happened there. Can you please help me? And I don't want compliments. I just want help. Um, I've preached in front of lots and lots of people in lots of different contexts. The most intimidating place I've ever preached is at a a 7 a.m. preaching lab in front of six sleepy seminary students who couldn't care less whether you're good or not. Um, And you ask for feedback, and they'll just say, I don't know, I was bored. You know, well, okay. (laughs) Um, So asking for feedback is helpful. Um, Practice, practice, practice. Uh, the greatest preaching instructor I've ever had um, happens to be married to me because we, uh, when I first started preaching, uh, I would preach my sermon for the next day every Saturday night in our bedroom. With a, I have a music stand, and that was my pulpit. And my wife would sit in bed and listen, and then she would give me feedback so that it would go better the next day. And that was really useful. Um, she she was very helpful. She's a master teacher herself, and so I couldn't get anything by her. You know, I, I couldn't make excuses. You know, and if she if she's in bed going. <sighs> then, uh, then I knew, oh, well, what was that for? What was that? Oh, I don't know. Keep me awake. Um, so, so getting feedback is helpful. Um, but trust your content, too. Uh, I'm always, I, I, I've learned, I don't trust how I feel after teaching and preaching. I'm just going to do my very best and ask the Lord to help. Um, but I don't, I don't trust that because there's a lot of different things that could be happening uh, in my mind. I just want to put my nose down and teach what I've studied and let the Lord do the rest. But asking for feedback, especially if you're newer. Um, the great thing about teaching kids is that you don't have to ask them for feedback. They'll give it to you right while you're teaching. Right? <laughs> You know, when, when, when a little girl is doing pirouettes in the back of the room and you're like, I don't think I have her interest at this point. <laughs> they'll give you feedback right then because they, they're not trying to please anybody. They'll, they'll be looking at the, the clock just continually. They'll be yawning. They'll be poking each other. So 
I think if you can hold the attention of a group of kids, uh, you can you can hold that with anybody. Because at least you guys are trying to be polite, but kids don't have that filter. So, uh, but ask for feedback. Don't trust your own emotions. Was there a specific part to that you're asking, or is that just generally? Okay. Yeah. Who else? That's a it's a weird topic to ask questions on, so we can shift when we need to. Uh, just out of curiosity. Who here is right now in this moment in a situation where you have an opportunity to present a Bible lesson of some sort in some context? Who is doing that right now? Okay, there's a number of you. Who here, be brave, would like prayerfully like to find yourselves in that situation at some point in the, in the future? Who, who would like that? There you go. Okay, so, so this is applicable to you. Um, and when you put your BTI Bible lesson together, find somebody to teach. Um, this is our, we're about to finish our fourth time through all of BTI. It's been nine years. And the overwhelming feedback I have gotten from people who have gone all the way through done their Bible lesson, done even just a decent job on it, and presented it to someone, is the overwhelming feedback I've gotten is, first of all, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to keep studying the Word. And people that have heard this presentation are blown away. I didn't know you were a Bible scholar. I didn't. You're not. You just walked through all the steps of studying the Scripture and worked hard at a presentation that was reasonable. And uh, I love getting emails uh, you know, from, I got an email from a mom. I'm about to present my Bible lesson to all my kids. Would you please pray for me? And she was so excited about it. And uh, she told me later that her kids were blown away that her mom, their mom could teach like this. And so now she's continued uh, doing that. So uh, have faith in the process. Have faith in the Word of God. And if you'll work at it even just mildly, uh, you'll, you will surprise yourselves. Um, I have a particular burden. And since we have a moment here, I'll, I'll tell it to you. Um, I think that uh, e- even in our women's ministry, especially early on, we would try to find some guest speakers, some women to come speak to the women. You know how hard it is to find a woman who can do a solid expository lesson of a scripture passage? It's almost impossible. And and part of that is due to the fact that the best seminaries don't train women for gospel ministry at the same time. To me, that's that's a tragedy. Um, there, you should, we should have Priscilla's uh, who can teach the Word of God. And we've had a few disasters. I mean, we've had, uh, we had one woman come that came with, you know, with, with high recommendations and so forth and literally came and contradicted about five things we teach here. And I had to do our next women's event to correct all of those. And it was just silly. And so um, for you ladies, what a valuable treasure you are if you will even elevate yourselves just a little bit to be able to teach. Um, that, that is a treasure in the church. And if we have a church with 10, 12, 15, 20 women who can adequately handle a passage of Scripture, wow, that's, that's life-changing. Um, so to me, that's a, that, that is something that needs to happen. Um, and I think it's also good for, for men, um, especially if you have wives who are more interested in the Word of God than you are, then, well, let's get on it, right? Um, but that's, that's what a healthy church is, is a church filled with people who are able to open the Word of God and explain it at some level. Um, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my great heroes of the faith, Tremendous preacher. If anybody, anybody who here has listened to David Martin Lloyd Jones? Okay, 
So if you've listened to him, you know that he, it can be a little bit dry at times. He's fun to listen to just because of the way he talks. We come now once again to the book of Ephesians. And, and it's worth just listening just for that. And you think, how did this guy become a pastor? What a great man of God. There's one thing he failed at, though. He didn't really spend any time teaching other people how to do what he does. He, he preached, and a glorious preacher, the greatest and longest set of sermons on Romans that I know of, 327, something like that, and he didn't even finish Romans. He, he retired before he finally finished, um, preaching over like 13 years. Um, but he didn't spend a lot of time teaching people how to do what he does. And so when his ministry ended, the church suffered because they, they didn't have an infrastructure with a lot of people who had been well-trained. Um, so, and that's okay. I mean, he, he, what a contribution he's made. Um, and you can still listen to him. So that's my hope, is that you take this seriously so that uh, you can be an asset in the body of Christ. Because I, I think you can have a church with a, with a decent preacher with a thousand people in it and if none of them can teach the Bible at some level that's not really a successful ministry in my mind that's a that's a one man show that's not the way it ought to be um, our our uh, philosophy here has always been uh, I want to surround myself with with good and godly men we have a we have a deep bench even here uh, of people who can preach and teach and that is that is fabulous but be one of those and if you're scared, then start with people who lo- will love you no matter what. Um, that, that's who you start with. So, any other questions on this particular topic?